0: Well, good morning, everyone. Once again, <laughs> my name is Doug Horton. I'm the associate pastor here at Harvest Bible Church. Um, I uh, was asked to preach this morning because there's a group that's in Israel, um, and our senior pastor Lance is um, with them in Israel. And I, we thought that the commute this morning would be difficult, so um, he asked me to step in and preach. Now. We at Harvest Bible Church we love the Bible. We love to preach and teach the Bible. Uh, senior Pastor Lance Waldy is currently going through the Book of Luke on Sunday mornings, and um, it's uh, and Wednesday nights as well. We go through. Um, I think he's going through Acts, and we do the same in the youth group. Um, but this morning, um, I wanted to go over something that really piqued my interest while I was at um, doing my undergrad at uh, Chriswell Bible College. Now. By the time I got to Criswell Bible College, I had been a Christian less than a year. So, of course, I knew everything there was to know about the Bible. Um, I showed up to Chriswell. I knew at this point, I wasn't raised in church. And so, I knew about Moses. I knew about Noah. I knew about Jesus. I heard about these names, Abraham. But I didn't, I, I thought all these stories were... Just isolated stories that kind of peppered through history, that they weren't connected in any way, that they weren't um, a part of a larger story. And so, when I started uh, studying at Criswell, I was a class I took, uh, it was an Old Testament class, and the professor required us to read the entirety of the Old Testament, from Genesis all the way to Malachi, three times through in one semester, it was different translations uh, each time. So, you know, NIV... Um, nas and then esv or whatever he didn't really care what the translations were but we had to read through it three times and it was during this time that i started to see the stories that these names that i had heard growing up they weren't disconnected stories they weren't just peppered through history they were all a part of a larger story One long story that started from Adam and Eve and went all the way through history that culminated in the birth, the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I started to realize, this is the first time I started to warm up and understand the concept of sovereignty. This idea that God had had a plan the whole time. And as I looked through history, okay, someone showed me this and it really changed my perspective. What you do is you take this word history and you split it up and you find out that it is his story. History is his story. B.C., before Christ. Now our modern scholars will try to convince you that it's not B.C. anymore, it's B.C.E., before the common era. Baloney, it's before Christ, okay? From the time it all started, it was a count up, a count down, really. You're counting down to zero, And when you get to zero, you get to Jesus. The Old Testament, all pointing towards the story, all those stories pointing to Jesus. And then us now, A.D. Some of us think it's after his death. It's not. It's a Latin word. But anyways, it means the year of our Lord. So we in the New Testament look back at Jesus because he is the fulcrum. There is no time without him. There's no history without him because history is his story. So I started to recognize that these, all these different names that I had heard, Moses, Noah, uh, Jonah, um, David, Solomon, all these big names I had heard growing up, they weren't just disconnected stories. They were actually all connected. And I saw God with a, a purpose in all of this. And I started to warm up this idea of sovereignty. And that's what our sermon today is, the incredible sovereignty of God. Now, sovereignty is a big college word. It has to do with God's supreme rule and absolute authority over the entire universe. When Christians talk about God's sovereignty, what we're talking about is God's divine plan and outworking of salvation history. This is what I was talking about. History is his story. Okay? So, we in the, old, well, the whole of the Old Testament was looking forward to Christ. All of those stories that you hear in the Old Testament, for example, the Passover, that's a, a foreshadowing of Jesus. The story in Exodus chapter 12, I think it's 12, where the rage and wrath of God comes through Egypt and starts killing the firstborn. And it kills indiscriminately all who are in Egypt except for those who are covered in the blood, foreshadowing the future when Christ comes. For us in the New Testament, if our hearts are covered in the blood, God's rage and wrath passes over us and lands on the Son's sacrifice. All of it foreshadowing, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest going into the, the, the Holy of Holies to make a sacrifice, all pointing towards Jesus being our high priest. All of it pointing towards Christ. But sovereignty, in other words, God knows and is, con- is in control of all things that have happened in the past, in the present, and the future. As a result, God is never surprised, is never caught off guard, he is never out of control. Now, as a new believer, when I stumbled upon this, reading all these stories were connected, and that God had a plan, that all of it was connected, it really was amazing to me. And even now, when I get to teach this, all right, as a new believer, it was amazing, and I guess now, as an old believer, I don't know, it's still amazing, and I hope it is for you as well. But one of the books I was reading for the very first time in this Old Testament class was the book of Daniel. So if you would all please turn to Daniel, that's where we're going to be. What a wonderful book. Daniel was one of these rare books that... Has um, both. We're going to be in Daniel chapter eight, so you can be turning to Daniel chapter eight. Daniel is one of these rare books that has both stories that you can teach in children's ministry, and uh, you know these uh, prophecies that take great effort in in uh, in preaching through. So you've got the stories like uh, the Daniel in the Lion's Den. These are the stories we tell in the children's ministry. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right, about God's sovereignty. Um, God's sovereign over the mouth of the lions. God's sovereign over the fire. Remember, they come out of the fire, they don't even smell like fire. So God's sovereign over the, even the smell, right? And that's the stories we tell our kids. And then you, then you look at Daniel chapter 9 in those 70 weeks. Well, that's not something that we're going to, teach in children's ministry, that takes a lot of effort. If you were here when Pastor Lance masterfully preached through Revelation and talked about Daniel chapter 9 in those 70 weeks um, culminating in Christ walking in triumphantly when uh, everybody says, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to the very day. And that's what those, that, that comes out of Daniel chapter 9. That takes a lot of effort. So Daniel, you get both of these. It's really a fascinating book. But we're not going to be in Daniel chapter 9. What we're going to be in is Daniel chapter 8. Now, before we get into this, we've got to go over a little bit of background. So I want you guys to just hang with me, okay? Put on your thinking caps. It'll be worth it. It'll be worth it. Believe me. Now, at the close of the Old Testament, at the close of Malachi, and the opening of John the Baptist, which is the gospel, is about 400 years. There's 400 years between the Old and New Testaments. This period of time is usually referred to as the intertestamental period because it is in between the two testaments of the Bible. So far, so good? God was silent during this time. But that doesn't mean history just stopped. There was a lot of stuff going on during the intertestamental period. God was still orchestrating Many events in fulfilling prophecy during this time. The intertestamental period is full of incredible and fascinating history. As a matter of fact, it's one of my my favorite um, times of history that I like to teach through. We started uh, in Matthew years ago in the youth group, and we talked about the Maccabean revolt and um, you know all the, the intertestamental period that led up to Christ. It's just fascinating stuff. All of that stuff is just adds. Uh, uh, texture to the Gospels, uh, the history that led up to the the first four gospels, just a fascinating time um, also what, what we 're going to need to know is something called the Fertile Crescent. So the areas that you see here that are not highlighted right the gray area, most of that is just desert, not a lot going on in that gray area, but in that white area, the highlighted area you 'll see rivers and um, water. And so, where you have water, you have uh, there's a it's fertile, and you have commerce. You can load up barges, and you can travel from uh, the Persian Gulf all the way over to Egypt, so, or northern Africa over here. And so you've got Babylon just north of the Persian Gulf, and you go up the Tigris and the Euphrates, and you come over to Canaan in the Mediterranean Sea, take a boat down, you go to the Nile. So there was a lot of commerce that happened in this, there was a lot of trade. So whoever was in control of the Fertile Crescent often was the superpower of the time. You wanted to be in control of this because you could control the trade, you can tax it, and you can make a lot of money. So the transfer of power in the Fertile Crescent, first it was the Assyrian Empire. From about 1200 B.C. till about 600 B.C., you had the Assyrian Empire. Now, the Assyrians should sound familiar because of 722, Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, 722, the Assyrians come and conquer, and they destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. And then the Assyrians, so they're over the uh, Fertile Crescent and Canaan. Then they fade, and what comes next is the Babylonians. The Babylonians, uh, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, come in 586, and they destroy the southern kingdom. 586, they destroy the temple. They scoop up a lot of uh, the people. They, they uh, loot the temple they steal everything out of the temple and they bring it back to Babylon this is Daniel Daniel is taken back to Babylon as part of the treasure that they stole when they destroyed the southern kingdom in 586 that's the Babylonians and they were only around for about 70 years then the Persians come to prominence after the Babylonians and uh, we have King Darius who consolidates a lot of the power for the Persian Empire. His son, Xerxes, um, otherwise known as Ahasuerus in your Bible. But uh, Xerxes actually marries someone in our Bible, Esther. Xerxes, Xerxes marries Esther in the book of Esther in 470 BC. So we got some extra, Bible, extra, extra biblical history uh, overlapping with actual Bible history, which this kind of stuff just fi- I find fascinating. Okay, So when Queen Esther was queen, this is, this is how big the Persian Empire was. Just to give you some scale. It was a big empire. Not only did they have the Fertile Crescent, but they were all the way over to India, northern Africa, up into Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And both Darius and his son Xerxes, even though they had all of this, they were really concerned for some reason... With this little part right here. That's Greece. They were real interested in Greece. Around 500 BC, King Darius of Persia had spread the influence and power of his empire all the way to Greece. Many of the Greek city states rebelled against the Persians. So the Greek city states were very independent. Matter of fact, they didn't even like one another. The Athenians didn't like the Spartans. The Spartans didn't like like, uh, the guys from Marathon, so on and so forth. They were very independent. They did not like anyone to be in control over them. So here comes the Persians, and they occupy Greece. And the, the Greek city states were very upset with this. From 499 to 493, Darius comes to crush the revolt. And he's like, Well, I'm here, and I've got my big giant army. Why don't I just take over the rest of Greece? I'll just take over everything while I'm here. So all of Greece acquiesced, except for Athens and Sparta. So what, what Darius would do, he would come to the city gates and say, I've got this big giant army. You can just surrender and pay me taxes, or we can destroy your city and steal everything that you have anyways. So a lot of the Greek city states just said, okay we surrender. Here's some taxes. We'll give you tribute. Well, Athens and Sparta. if you guys know anything about the Spartans, they didn't, they didn't give in to anybody. These guys were tough guys. Okay. <clears throat> in 490 BC, Darius pushes towards Athens with 20,000 troops. And then he is met at marathon and loses embarrassingly It's a, an embarrassing loss. To the Greek army with only 9,000 troops, not even half the amount he had, and they lose. Now remember, King Darius is over this big giant empire, and you got teeny tiny little Greece beats him. It's very embarrassing. This embarrassing loss to the Greeks really struck a chord with the Persians, and with Darius's son Xerxes. So Darius dies. Xerxes takes over. He returns to Greece, and he's coming. He's mad. He's ready to destroy them. Regain the sense of pride that they had lost at Marathon. 480 BC, Xerxes brings the Persian war machine down on Greece. But they get held up at this little little place. It's called the Hot Gates. Held up at Thermopylae, where 300 Spartans hold the vast Persian army long enough for all of the people in Athens to escape. So all the Athenians take all their stuff and they just leave while the 300 Spartans hold the entire Persian army at Thermopylae. Now, there was a famous movie that came out a couple years ago. I'm not recommending it. It's rated R for a reason, okay? But that brought a lot of light to this event. Now, that, that Xerxes right there, that's Esther's husband. Isn't that interesting? Same guy. So, extra biblical history overlapping with biblical history, right? I'm reading this stuff for the first time, at Criswell going this is fascinating I loved it I loved it I couldn't get enough of it after defeating the 300 Spartans Xerxes invades an empty city of Athens so he wins but it's a hollow victory he doesn't doesn't feel good about it during this time the Athenian navy cuts off Xerxes mighty army from their supply line and he is forced to leave so again with his tail between his legs he's got to embarrassingly go back to Persia but while he goes back, he destroys everything on his way back. He is very upset. And anything that you could probably imagine what he would do is what he did. So as they, as they retreated and went back to Persia, they did terrible things to the Greeks. And as you can imagine, this led to a deep hatred of the Persians by the Greeks. The Greeks hated the Persians. They would never forget the invasion and the oppression of the Persians. And after Xerxes' retreat, the Greek city-states, they experienced a time of wealth and influence. And over the next hundred years is 480 to about 350 BC. Now, during this time, Athens emerges as the dominant power in the region. However, Greece doesn't have any central authority. Remember, these are independent states, independent city-states. And they don't really like each other. They certainly don't like outsiders. If, if you're from Greece, it's okay, but we still, aren't, we still don't like you. But if you're anything else, we just, we really hate you. But if you're a Persian, oh, you're the worst. And so they would, are entangled in these conflicts among the various city-states, and this is called the Pelopon, Peloponnesian War. So if, this is another thing, if the last time you studied history was high school, you probably heard this word, um, and this is what we're talking about. This is the time, okay, the time frame. Now, around 350 B.C., the king of Macedon... Now, Macedonia is just north of Greece. So the king of Macedon, named Philip II, slowly starts to invade Greece. Soon he consolidates many of the Greek city-states. Now, remember, the Greeks didn't like anybody. They didn't like anybody. They thought everybody besides them were barbarians, including these Macedonians. But what was so brilliant about Philip II was that he knew... That Greece looked down on everyone ex- the same except for those Persians. He knew that they hated the Persians the most. Greeks hated the Persians because of what they had done. Philip used this hatred of the Persians, along with a brilliant political acumen, to build a wealthy treasury, a healthy infrastructure. And he amasses this giant army. So what he does is he goes down to each one of these Greek city-states and says, Hey, listen, I know I'm a Macedonian, but I also know I was a part of that stuff. When Darius and Xerxes came through, why don't we, instead of waiting for them to come and invade us, why don't we get an army and flip the script, we're going to go invade them. And so all the Greek All the Greek cities say, hey, that's a great idea. So they start joining in with him and they join together and they amass this giant army. And so this huge army is assembled and it's ready to invade Persia. This is right at 336 BC. And so they're having this big party. They're all, you know, trying to get each other, you know, uh, charged up and uh, have, uh, you know, uh, get each other courage. We're going to go get this. We're going to beat the Persians. And then at this big party... Right before the invasion, King Philip is killed. So, if you're the king, who takes over when you're the king, when you die? The son. So, Philip's son takes over. He's only 20 years old. And he becomes the king of Greece, the king of Macedonia, and he also inherits one of the largest Greek armies that has ever been assembled, ever. And this guy's name is Alexander, otherwise known as Alexander the Great. And I know you've heard of him. In 336, he takes over. From 334 to 332, he crosses over the Hellespont, which is in between the Aegean Sea and the Black Sea. There's a little, it's like the Turkish Straits. They cross over that waterway. They go into Persia, and they invade Persia. And he defeats the entire Persian army. Now he becomes the supreme leader over that empire. Within a year or two, after taking over, he is now king of Greece, Macedonia, and the Persian Empire. But he doesn't stop there. 331, he moves south, taking over Canaan and Egypt, comes back up north, 331 to 330, moves his vast army east to Babylon, and he goes beyond. 329 to 323, he conquers India and the surrounding areas. And in A short 13-year period. At the height of his power, 323, Alexander the Great dies. And he dies without an heir. So just to give you an idea, he manages to become king in 336 BC. King over Macedon, Greece, Egypt, Canaan, Persia, the Fertile Crescent, India, and beyond in a a short 13-year period. Now this is at a time when there's no trucks. There's no planes, trains and automobiles. Okay? It's it is a an achievement just to go from Greece all the way to India with that amount of people, but to do it and conquer on the way was amazing. Unprecedented. Unprecedented. This expansion of his empire was just there was nothing like it. Nothing like it in all of history. Pretty amazing. Let's look at Daniel chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 2. Daniel chapter 8, verse 2. Daniel's talking here. He says, I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa. Susa is east of Babylon. So he's in Persia. He's in Persia. Okay? Citadel of Susa which is in the province of Alam. I looked in the vision. I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Then I lifted my eyes and looked and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and he magnified himself. So we got this ram There he is Got two horns He's moving from the east to the west So you're thinking um, east of Florida to California East to the west Right? And so he's moving like this There you go East to the west um, Another way to look at it Here he is over here in the west Westward, northward, and southward. So he goes westward, northward, southward. Pretty interesting. Now let's look at Daniel 8, chapter 8, verse 5 through 8. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. He came up to the ram that had two horns which I had seen standing in front of the canal and rushed at him with a mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram and he was enraged at him and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him and there was no one to rescue the ram from his power. The male goat magnified himself exceedingly. Let's see here. But once... He became powerful. This is uh, verse 8. The male goat magnified himself, and as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place came up four conspicuous horns to ward the uh, four winds of heaven. So now we've got a, a goat with one big horn. Now, in the Old Testament, horns were, uh, these prophecies, horns were um, representative of power. So you have a ram with two horns. You have a goat with one large horn, and it's going from the east to the west. Okay? Behold, the male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the entire earth without touching the ground. That means it was going really fast. It was going so fast it looked like it wasn't even touching the ground. Watch how fast. You ready? That's how fast. Hey, don't close your eyes. We're going to do it one more time. Watch how fast. There it goes. So you caught it the second time. And this goat came up to the ram. That had two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, rushed at him, which is the ram, in his mighty wrath. And I saw the goat come up beside the ram, and the goat was enraged at the ram. And the goat struck the ram and smashed the ram's two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. I remember reading this as a new believer, going, Daniel is crazy. This guy's nuts. Rams, goats, and horns. What is all this? I was so confused. And I was, you know, I was a new believer. And so I had, you know, that fire that new believers have. And I was like, Lord, I believe you. I believe this. Whatever Daniel's going on, I believe. But I don't get it. (laughs) I don't know what's going on. I had the hardest time understanding this. But I kept reading. I kept reading. And I want to encourage you. Just like what Lance is always encouraging Harvest to read through the Bible in a year. There's going to be parts of the Bible that may not be clear to you. And I want to encourage you, keep reading. Keep reading. And over time, it will become clear to you. So I kept reading. Look at this. Daniel chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. Look at what he says in 15 and 16. When I, Daniel had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me, so I was going, oh man, great, Daniel doesn't even get it. That made me feel better, because you know Daniel got the vision and he's going, well, I don't even know what this is. Goats and rams and horns, I don't even know what this is, Lord. And so he looks up and he goes, Lord, what is this? I don't even know what this is. So as a new believer, I said, okay, if Daniel doesn't get it, that's okay, I'm all right, I'm okay. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Ulai, And he called out and said, Gabriel, explain the vision to the man. I'm going, oh, yes. Okay, so there's going to be an explanation. We're going to figure out what all this is. So guess what happens? Look at Daniel chapter 8, verse 20 and 21. Verse 20. Verse 20. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. That's what the Bible says. Now, remember all that background we went through that you were struggling to stay awake while I was talking about the history? Okay, for those of you who endured, now it's going to pay off. Because those horns were Darius and his son Xerxes, who were both kings of the Medo-Persian Empire. Verse 21, okay, So that's the ram. What about that goat? That shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. That's what what they were telling Daniel. That's what's in the Bible. This is no longer history. This is what's in the Bible. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between the eyes is the first king. Y'all, this is talking about Alexander the Great. So I'm going to pause here for a moment and let this wash over you. Okay? Now, if you've studied history, you would have at some point come across this term. If you've studied history at all, this is a term that you would have come across at some point. The word is Hellenism. Okay? This, is not, this has nothing to do with hell. Okay? Hellenism. Hellenism. The largest and most lasting contribution that Alexander left behind something called Hellenism. The ancient Greek word for Greece is hellas. While moving from one conquest to another, Alexander left behind the influence of Greek culture, language, philosophy, roads, and economy. That influence is called Hellenism. The Greek influence on the world is called Hellenism. Alexander's men became masters at bridge and road building in order to move the massive army from one place to another Moreover these bridges and roads became more and more important as supply lines This is the further their army went the more important those roads became You had to feed that war machine. How do you feed them? You got to have supplies. How do you get the supplies there? roads bridges along with the Greek culture, language, and economy connected his entire empire through something called Hellenism. Before Alexander, the world was divided. So if you went down to Egypt, everybody there spoke Egyptian, or whatever they speak there. They had their own culture, their own religion, their own economy, their own coins. If you went to Canaan, right? Uh, Where the Philistines are. Philistines had their own religion, culture, language. The Jews, they had their own culture, religion, language, economy. If you went up to Turkey, they had all that too. You go out to Persia, they spoke a different language. They had a different currency. They had a different philosophy. They had all of these things were different. Everywhere you went, it was different. And as Alexander went through and conquered each one of them, guess what he left behind? Greek influence. And what happened was, the world became connected. When he would conquer a new area, he would install a trusted Greek official to govern the area. So as he went from one to the next to the next, he would leave someone that he had brought with him from Greece as the mayor or the governor. He went down to Egypt and established a whole new city and named it after himself, Alexandria. That city's still there today. You could go visit Alexandria in Egypt. That's the city that Alexander the Great built and established. It's pretty cool. But he left Greek people in charge. So you know what this means? If you wanted to start a business, you had to go to the Greek official, who the Greek governor that Alexander had left. Say, so, hey, I want to start a business. Well, first of all, you got to, I don't, I'm not going to learn your language, the governor would say. You got to learn my language. Okay, so now I got to learn Greek. Okay, now that you learn Greek, I want you to pay me X amount of money for your business. But I don't want your Egyptian stuff. I want Greek coins. And don't, don't try to talk to me in any other language other than Greek. So, as a result, if you wanted to sell something, buy something, trade something, if you wanted to travel You would have to know how to speak Greek, have Greek coins, and know the local leaders who were almost always Greek. And Alexander inadvertently had connected an otherwise disconnected world. Now, this didn't happen overnight. This wasn't something that happened overnight. There was no newspapers. There was no internet. So the influence of Greek culture, Hellenism, took hundreds of years to finally get all the way down to the common person. Hundreds of years it took for the Greek culture to finally influence enough of the world to where it was actually connected. Took hundreds of years to do this. Now, back to Alexander. At the peak of his power and influence, right at the top, he's conquered everything he knows how to conquer, and his Greek generals say, listen, We've been on the road for 13 years. We're stopping. We're not going any further. We want to go back to Greece. And Alexander says, fine, we'll stop. And then he dies. 33 years old. And he did not have an heir. Now remember, his dad, King Philip, died, and Alexander took over. So now Alexander dies, but he doesn't have an heir. So this is potential. This is a big, giant empire. So there's a potential for chaos, chaos. This is a potential for infighting and who's in charge and who's going to get this empire. So what the generals decide to do, they get together and they have a, uh, a meeting and his four generals decide to divide up the empire between themselves. This guy Ptolemy gets Egypt and Palestine. Seleucus gets Babylon and Syria. Cassander gets Macedonia and Greece. Lysimachus gets Thrace and by. Bith- I can never get that word out right. Anyways, that's northern Turkey. So these four guys decide, hey, we're going to divide up the empire. We're not going to fight. We're not going to cause uh, a lot of trouble. But someone needs to govern this. And so we're going to govern it. So they're Greek. So they have their influence on the governors that Alexander had installed. So Greek influence from the top down. Culture, language, roads, economy, philosophy. So these are, this is just a map representing the various areas that these guys had taken over, okay? Now, let's get back to Daniel chapter 8. Let's look at verse 22. Daniel 8, 22. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent the four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. But that's, that's not history. That's what's in the Bible. I'm reading this for the first time. My head is just exploding. Boom. So I'm like, okay, this is, this is amazing. This is the prophecy of Alexander's four generals taking over the empire. Now, I don't know about y'all, but my mind was blown. So I immediately was like, okay, maybe this was written maybe this was written after all of the events, right? That would be an easy explanation. Maybe someone wrote this after all of the events took place. Here's what's really amazing. This prophecy that in Daniel chapter 8 was written about 550 BC. 550 BC. Remember, Daniel was taken in 586. When the southern kingdom was destroyed and the temple was destroyed, Daniel's taken to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, 586, B- 586 BC. So he's writing this in about 550 BC. That's around 200 years before Alexander the Great comes to power. That is incredible. This is what I discovered while I was studying at Bible college. But it wasn't until I got to seminary. This is when I did the deep dive in seminary. I found out why. Why is this important? So that's a good question, isn't it? Why is this important? Why spend so much time on this? What does this have to do with my spiritual well being or my spiritual maturity? Right? History's fun, history's good. I like history, but what does it all mean? Right? For one thing, this is God telling us what's going to happen. And then it happens just the way he says it's going to happen. What's the title of the sermon? God's sovereignty. That's what this points to. God's sovereignty. His um. His omnipotence. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. If God is going to say something 200 years before it happens, and it happens just the way God says it, that is sovereignty. That's amazing. That is amazing. That is incredible. That means if God says something, it will happen. I remember reading this and, and, and coming to this conclusion at, at, at Criswell, just weeping. This is the first time i had ever come across something like this, that the God that I serve knows everything. I was just, it was such an encouragement to me. You know what it also means? It means that we can believe him and we can trust his word. We can trust his word. What he says is going to happen is going to happen. It was true back then and it is true now. And I will tell you, so much of the pain of doubt that we believers have comes from our inability to trust in God. So much of the pain of doubt that we Christians experience in our lives come from, comes from, directly comes from, our inability to trust God. That somehow we have to be in control. If if I don't do it, who will? Now that doesn't mean we just you know abandon responsibility. Okay, I don't want y'all walking away going, Pastor Doug says we don't have to do anything. God's in control, right? That's not what I mean. Okay. Um, consider the birds. They don't sow. They don't reap. yet they they eat every day. God provides for them every day. They don't sow and they don't reap, but God provides for them every day. Now, have you ever seen a bird standing on a branch with its mouth open like this? Uh, Pour seeds in my mouth, God. Where's all my seeds? No. Birds got to go out and work, right? Early bird gets what? Gay, you got to get up early. You got to work all day. Doesn't mean you have to worry about it, but you got to do your part. God is still sovereign. He is in control. We don't just sit around with our mouth open with, uh, you know, this entitlement. But I tell you, so much of what we struggle with as Christians comes directly from our inability to trust that this word is true. And we all, everyone in this room who's been here for a while knows that. But you may not feel it. You know it, but you may not feel it. And boy, I tell you what, if I could come up with a pill that could make you feel what you know, if you could feel what you know to be true, wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that drastically change your life? <clears throat> Don't take my word for it. Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Psalms 143.8. Let me hear your faithfulness in the morning. For I trust in you. Teach me the way in which I should walk. For to you I lift up my soul. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. And whose trust is the Lord. Isaiah 26, 4. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. Psalm 33, 4. Probably the most apropos to what we're talking about. For the word of the Lord holds true, and we can trust everything he does. We can trust everything he does. We can trust in the Lord. So again, why is this important? Not only does God point, and not only does this point to God's word being true, but it also points to God's orchestration of both his son's coming and the spread of the gospel. So the drums of prophecy are slowly, quietly beating in the Old Testament. You can barely hear them, barely audible. But the Old Testament drums of prophecy pointing towards Christ are low, but you can still hear them. Like I said earlier, the Passover was pointing towards Christ, the Day of Atonement pointing towards Christ, the sacrificial system pointing towards Christ. All of these prophecies. Uh, coming together Alexander the Great and the rest of them all of it slowly pointing towards Christ and the day that he comes and he's born and his life his death his burial and his resurrection those the drums growing 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 over time because history is not just history it is his story and over the course of time we can see these empires rising and falling and so All of these empires sort of fall away, the Medo-Persian Empire and all the rest of them, and soon Rome takes over. Rome inherits what Alexander left behind in culture, economy, language, and roads, and Rome would often update and improve the roads that were built 300 years earlier by Alexander's army. Why does God give Daniel this vision of the ram and the goat in Daniel chapter eight? Because God was going to use Alexander the Great to lay a foundation of a common language, commerce, and roads so that the gospel could spread all over the world. What was he doing? Why was he telling Daniel this? One, I think, to encourage our faith. So we know that when God says something, it is true. When he says he's going to do something, he does it. And he does it just the way that it says in the Bible. One large horn falls, four come up after. Who is that? Alexander the Great and his four generals. Darius and Xerxes coming over, westward, northward, southward. That's what happened. That's what, they, that's what he said, and that's what happened. So if that doesn't encourage your faith, I don't know what does. But also, God setting the stage for his son and the drums of prophecy growing and building and coming to a fever pitch so that when Christ hits the scene, the stage is set and everything is ready. Just like John the Baptist, lowering the mountains, raising the valleys, and making a straight path for Christ to come, so that when Christ does show up, everything's ready. That when he speaks, there can be a common language that everybody can understand. That when he travels, there'll be roads already paved that he can walk. Even the philosophy of the Greeks is influenced in how he speaks. It's been set, the stage has been set. Moreover, because it was an orchestration by God to prepare the world for the coming of his son and the spread of the gospel, much of the New Testament is written in something called Koine Greek. For those of you who have been around long enough, you know Koine is common, common Greek. Where did we get that? How is it that it was there? Because God was orchestrating it. Most of the world at the time spoke, at the time of Christ, they all spoke Koine Greek as a result of Alexander the Great's influence, Hellenism. Now, Acts 2, the pouring out of the Spirit, happened about two months after the celebration of Passover, which is a big, high Jewish holiday. Acts chapter 2, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, During this time, many Jews came from all over the world. Which roads were they using? Those Jews coming from all over the world would come to Jerusalem. And the city of Jerusalem would swell to sometimes over a million people to to celebrate these high Jewish holidays. The drums of prophecy are now at their height as Peter, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, stands up and starts preaching. Preaching. And what does he preach about? He tells people about Jesus. He tells people about Jesus because history is his story. And God had been orchestrating this for hundreds of 300 years. God had been orchestrating this and 500 years earlier revealed it to Daniel these Jews who were from all over the world now traveled back home on roads built by Alexander so that they could spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Moreover, it could be communicated in a common language that everyone understood. Fast forward, when Paul travels all over the Mediterranean world on his missionary journeys, what roads do you think he was using? Outside of Hebrew, when he was going to the synagogues and talking to the Jews, what language was he using on these trips? Koine Greek. The Lord had been setting the stage not only for his son's birth, life, death, burial, and resurrection, but for the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ. God had planned all this out way before the foundation of the world. And he revealed it to Daniel 550 years before his son's arrival. Brothers and sisters, our faith is a faith not based on feelings. So much of our culture has to do with feelings. We put feelings above all. It is the most authoritative thing in our culture. And the worst application of this heresy is that if you're a boy and you feel like a girl, guess what our culture will tell you? You're a girl. You're a girl and you feel like a boy. Guess what? You're a boy. Despite facts, despite truth. Let me tell you something. I don't want to hurt your pretty ears. But boys are boys and girls are girls. Matter of fact, one of my most favorite things about Maggie is that she's not a guy. (laughs) Boys are boys and girls are girls, okay? But it is a symptom of this, this lie that your feelings are more important than the truth. And the good news is our faith is not built on feelings, it is built on facts, facts. The truth, historical truth, is what we just saw. Historical truth. There's a lot that we don't know. There's a lot about eternity, there's a lot about heaven, there's a lot about even the nature of God that we don't know. God is still a mystery to us, even though um, he's given to us sufficient answers. We have sufficient answers for today, but so much, there's still so much that's hidden from us. Um, if you think of Paul in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he, he's taken up into the third heaven. He comes back and he says, I don't even have words to describe what I saw. It, God should have brought a poet because I I can't even describe, there's not even words that I can put to the beauty that I saw. And so there's, there's still things hidden from us, but every so often, God will take eternity and just peel back a corner and let us see, hey, Daniel, here's what's gonna happen in the future. Look at that. And as we look into that and we get a glimpse of it, even if it's just for a moment, we can hear God saying, listen, I've got it. I've got you. I've got it. I'm in control. I'm not surprised by anything. Nothing knocks me off of my throne. And if there's things going on in your life today that you don't understand, it's my hope Maybe something's been revealed to you a little bit that you got a glimpse of glory this morning and you know that God is in control, that he is sovereign and that you can trust him because he's good and he loves you and he wants good things for you. And if that's not an encouragement, well, I don't know what is. That lights my fire. I love that. Because if God is gonna orchestrate all of that for his son, is he not gonna do that also for us? Think on your life. Think on your life. Has there been close calls in your life? There's been times in my life, I, if I, I look back on that and I go, man, Lord, by the hair of my chinny-chin-chin. Chin. Otherwise, Ooh, man. Has there been orchestration in your life? Yes, there has. So why not trust him? Why not? If we could wrap our minds around that, what? if we could wrap our minds around, honestly, the sovereignty of God, what is there to be worried about? What are we worried about? What are we afraid of? If God is sovereign, what are we worried about? What are we afraid of? <laughs> God is good. Trust in him. Trust in him. Yeah? Let's pray. Father, what an incredible God you are. It's my hope, Lord, that, that you, Lord, would plant seeds in the hearts and uh, the, the soil of the soul of uh, everyone here this morning. That if, if what we talked about today was just, just right out of grasp, Lord, that, um, that you would reveal in your own special way to everyone, how you are good, how you are trustworthy, how you have orchestrated all things to culminate into your son's uh, birth, life, death, burial, and resurrection. That you set the stage so that when your son showed up, there would be a context, a matrix, a language that we would all be able to understand then even so more when you, Lord, gave us the Holy Spirit, we were able to, that you, Lord, were able to spread the gospel all over the world. Just a few hundred years, like turn whole of the whole of history on its ear. What an incredible God we serve. Lord, you are in control. You are sovereign and you are good. And So, Lord, we pray all this in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you, may his face shine upon you, and may his countenance be raised upon you and give you peace. You are dismissed.